recently received a scholarship and admission to college next year. So next year at this time, this particular individual will be living in Madison, uh, attending the University of Wisconsin. So you can kind of guess who that is. That's not the point of the story, but uh, at the scholarship awards ceremony that we attended a couple weeks back, uh, Arnie Duncan, the former education secretary, gave a short address to the students, encouraging them to be engaged in the political process. And he said, don't just participate in the democracy by voting. Change the democracy because it is in constant need of improvement. In many ways, it was an inspiring exhortation to make a difference in our nation and in our world appropriate for future leaders. And it's exciting to see how those words will play out in the lives of Ashley and her cohort of fellow scholarship recipients. But what about for the rest of us who are a little further along in life than high school graduation? Maybe we're in the middle of our careers or already at the end of our professional working careers. Maybe we're at home with our children. Regardless of where you are at in your career, I want you to consider today how each of us is still invited into community-changing work. And it's not just political. It's, not, it's spiritual and eternal. It's the kind of work that has direct impact on the world that we live in, where we live, where we work, where we live, uh, worship, and even where we play. As we learned last week, the view of salvation that we get from Scripture isn't just about being a good person and going to be with God for eternity. Because if you think about it, that's actually really selfish. The image that we are given in Scripture is of a people group. First, of Abraham and the nation of Israel, and then through the church made up of followers of Jesus. Groups of people are sent into the world to bring the restoration of God's good work in the world, as Jerry has reminded us earlier in the service. Now, whether we do this good work of restoration in the context of our work, or in our neighborhoods that we live in, or in acts of mercy, the beginning point for all of these things is prayer. In our Praying the Mission series, we're looking at what it means to do intercessory prayer, That's prayer on behalf of others. Last week, we looked at how to pray for prosperity, not for for yourself, but for the prosperity of those that we are in relationship with. Today, we're going to look at how we can pray for the communities that God has placed us in, where God has placed WCF in here on the hill, where God has placed us in the neighborhoods that we live in and the places that we work. We're not called merely to be consumers of this world that we live in. So wherever God has called you to be, it is through prayer that we begin to identify God's heart for communities that we live in, that we worship in, that we work in, and that we play in. In Genesis 18, verse 16 to 31, we see one of the first examples in Scripture of what it means to pray for a city. A city, in this case, that did not particularly reflect the values of God, the God that Abraham had come to know. But still, Abraham prayed for the city that was guilty of many sins. What kind of city was Sodom? The prophet Ezekiel writes later about Sodom, saying, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. 
but they did not aid the poor and the needy. The people of Sodom were so into themselves. They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned for the needs of others. Constantly on Snapchat and Instagram, posting their meals and ignoring the vulnerable around them. Yet Abraham chose to intercede for such a city, which shows his faith in God and the concern for the city and its people. And for those of us who have been at WCF for many years, just imagine how this neighborhood that the church has been in has changed over the past decades. From my understanding, the original occupants of this church, uh, this building, abandoned the church when crime got out of hand here, culminating in a car exploding outside on the street here. And they decided, we're moving to the suburbs. The destruction of cities is a great loss for humanity, and so Abraham pleads for God's mercy for this city. Our faith in God is actually revealed in our concern for people, and particularly for those that don't necessarily know uh, God as many of us do. But Abraham understood God's grace, which is mercy toward, given towards those who don't deserve it. The sins of Sodom were great, but nevertheless, Abraham was bold to intercede for this wicked city. His intercession was incisive, it was intensive, and it was inspiring. He appealed to God's righteousness. Abraham asked, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he supplements his question asking if God would destroy it if there were 50 righteous people, then 40 righteous people, then 30, 20, 10. Six times he repeatedly presents his request before God to save the city. He doesn't just pray for general blessings, Lord bless the city. He asks for specifics with precise numbers and expectations. So Abraham's intercession inspires us to plead and to pray and to intercede for our cities with specificity too. Specificity. Specificity? Specificity for cities. Let's say that ten times. Like Abraham, we understand that the safety of a city is directly linked to the spirituality that exists among people in that city. In verse 25, Abraham appeals to God's own character to answer the prayer. Knowing that God must be true to his nature, Abraham poses the question, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So what does just a just city look like? Brian Stevenson, the public interest lawyer who has dedicated his career to helping the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned, has said this, The opposite of poverty is not wealth. In too many places, the opposite of poverty is justice. What is just is not evil people being caught and criminals getting punished. What is just is not just that. What is just is not just the strong arm of the law being present on all corners of the city. What is just is that all people have an opportunity to flourish. They have a chance. In Jeremiah 29.7, many centuries later, the prophet Jeremiah says to the people of Babylon, Seek the prosperity and peace of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. It's a theme that the prophet Jeremiah reminds the exiles of Israel 
who are pining to return to their homeland, but now are living in a foreign land, the foreign land of Babylon, under pagan rule. They want times to be different. They want it to be like as they remembered it before, as they grew up. But Jeremiah directs them, no, I've called you there. So work, plant fields, flourish, and play, and contribute to the welfare of this city that you are in right now, even though it's not your own. That's a picture of justice. Though the exiled Israelites fear their situation is unjust. So what might justice look like here in D.C.? Justice could look like improving access to health care, improving educational outcomes, having healthy food options in places where all you can get are alcohols and and, um, convenience markets, having safe transit in neighborhoods, having affordable housing, having adequate support for those with mental illness. You know, as we begin praying for areas like this, for adequate funding, for wise decisions to be made, these all contribute to the welfare of the cities that we live in. Not, and the welfare of our cities isn't just measured by the presence of multi-million dollar condo developments. Now you may be a sharp Bible reader and notice that Abraham was first motivated to pray for the city because of the salva- for the safety of his nephew Lot. But in his prayer, the whole city benefited. There is an implication here. Our salvation overflows to benefit those around us. When God, benefits, when God intervenes, everyone is blessed, not just God's people. We see this reinforced in Paul's letter to Timothy as well. In 1 Timothy 2, as we heard read, we hear Paul write to encourage Timothy, a young leader in Ephesus at this point. Ephesus was a Roman city whose economy was built around its port, and whose religious landscape was dominated by this temple to Artemis, the goddess of fertility and prosperity. But here, Paul commends his disciple Timothy to pray for all people, and he names specifically leaders and those in authority. Last week, I started off the message inviting you to picture people that you are in relationship with and to pray for those people. I think if we were to pray for anyone, if we remember to pray for, it's usually people that we know, right? But how often do we pray for people that we don't share our lives with, at least directly? How often do we pray for our bosses, the executives and directors of our organizations? How often do we pray for our local city council members, or members of the police department, or the educators in the public school or school system? These are often people who hold the world together through their leadership. And often it's their decisions that make the biggest difference in the day-to-day lives of you and of your neighbors. You know, the headlines of the newspapers and the news may be filled with the drama of like global conflicts, presidential elections, impeachments, or redirecting funding for a border wall. Those are all decisions at the federal level, but the funding decisions of your local school may affect the lives of children in your neighborhood who generally have one shot at their education. The educational attainment of the children in our cities is often the deciding factor of who will be productive in our cities and who will be a burden in our cities. 
Research clearly indicates that states that invest in high schools and higher education have a better public safety benefit. Lower crime rates, lower violent crime rates, lower incarceration. In fact, a 1% increase in high school completion rate amongst men ages 20 to 60 would save the United States as much as $1.4 billion per year in reduced costs of crime incurred by victims and society at large. And those are 2004 stats. A 1% increase in high school graduation results in $1.4 billion value to, or reduction in cost to the United States. Over the past three decades, state and local expenditures for K-12 education doubled. So this uh, says about 69%, or depending on which stat you use, there's about doubled the spending in the, over the past three decades. But local, state, and expenditures for corrections departments have quadrupled or tripled in this chart above. What does that say about our priorities, about what flourishing looks like in our cities? Are we a more just society as a result of this kind of spending? These local initiatives paid for by your D.C. or county or state taxes have a direct impact on living quiet and peaceable lives. Yes, there are large-scale policy decisions made at the federal level, but it's at our local schools and our local governments that affect the immediate future of people living right in your neighborhood. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul invites us to pray for those in authority. The goal of our prayer is that we would live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. The goal of our prayer isn't just for followers of Jesus to enjoy a nice, crime-free neighborhood and increase property values. The call to pray for our cities and neighborhoods is a call for the flourishing for all people, that they too would come to experience the blessing and the peace of God. The call to pray for all people, as Paul directs Timothy here, is ultimately a call to pray for their salvation in the broadest sense a salvation that encompasses all of their lives. In verse 3 and 4, Paul says, This is good and pleases our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Through our prayer for decision makers and leaders, and through our advocacy, through our efforts to bless the neighborhood that we gather in, that we live in, that we work in, we are praying for people to come to know the good work of the living God. And notice how Paul puts it. He says, pray for all those in authority, not just the leaders that you think are God's leaders. Why? Because this is good and pleases God our Savior. There is only one Savior, and it isn't Caesar or any other human being for that matter, no matter how powerful they are. And it seems very counterintuitive that we pray for those in authority, even if they're leaders who don't profess faith in Christ, or maybe they profess faith in Christ, but don't live the way we would expect Christ followers to live. The command is especially surprising to Christians living under the rule of of the Roman Empire, where they're demanded to bow down in worship and in loyalty to Caesar. And they're expected to pay excruciating taxes and literally be treated as second-class citizens. Yet Paul tells them to pray for their leaders. Paul is saying that somehow in praying for these leaders, they will become part of God's plan to spread the gospel in all the world. You see, when leaders are doing their job 
even if they don't acknowledge God themselves, they are creating a place of peace and social stability that allows God's people to worship without persecution. For God's people to build families and communities that follow the way of holiness. In particular, when the world is at peace, the gospel can spread more easily. The good news of Jesus can go forth. God wants everyone of all races, of all colors, of all nations to come to him and to find true salvation. Church historians have noted that it is because of the relative peace and safety of the Roman Empire that established the church's mission to flourish as it did in those first few centuries. Paul's Roman citizenship and the safety of the Roman road and infrastructure is what enabled him to travel throughout the empire and allowed the gospel to spread at the rate that it did. This week, as you exercise your prayer muscles in praying for changed communities, don't just pray for our cities as a whole and general blessing, but pray for your community leaders. You'll find in your, in your bulletin, there's an insert for the prayer guide for this week where you can pray for the neighbors of WCF, pray for the schools, pray for local churches in your neighborhood and around here, pray for safety and peace, and pray for local politicians and community leaders. Maybe, it's, maybe you set up your alarm this week, daily, to pray for your boss and, your business, and business owners to make wise decisions, to help their organizations to function well and keep people employed. Maybe spend some time praying for teachers in your community, those you know and maybe those you don't know, for their schools to be resourced well. Pray for civic leaders to make decisions that help the long-term benefit of our cities and of our neighborhoods, not just for their short-term political benefits or for their party. Maybe pray for your neighbors to have good jobs so that they can contribute to the well-being of our cities and neighborhoods. Because of all these, if all these leaders can contribute to a quiet and peaceable life, then that enables the good news of Jesus to go forth. And our intercession and our prayer for them is not wasted. I think it's fitting that on this particular weekend, we are reminded to pray for and remember courageous men and women, people like Martin Luther King Jr., who have given their lives to raise awareness of injustices, but also to advance opportunities for all people to flourish. It's a call that we are all invited to participate in, at the very least, but not limited to, through prayer. It made, in fact, prayer made a difference for King, as his wife Coretta Scott King shares. She writes, Prayer was a wellspring of strength and inspiration during the civil rights movement. Throughout the movement, we prayed for greater human understanding, we prayed for the safety of our compatriots in the freedom struggle. We prayed for victory in our nonviolent protests, for brotherhood and sisterhood among all people of all races, for reconciliation and the fulfillment of the beloved community. That's, those are images of a flourishing city. She goes on to continue that on one particular moment in, in Martin Luther King's life, he felt completely overwhelmed because of phone calls and persecution and challenges. And he, he said that, I have nothing left to give. He prayed that before God, and he says, I can't face this alone anymore. And she, he reported to her, his wife, 
At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear a voice saying, Stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at our side forever. When Martin stood up from the table, he was imbued with a new sense of confidence, and he was ready to face anything. It's because someone was praying for him, and God answered prayer. That's what makes a difference. You know, we don't have to be in high-powered positions to affect change in our community and in our world, because we have one who holds the highest position in the universe, and he's doing that work already. And the living God invites us into this great work of change through the power of the Holy Spirit and under the leadership of Jesus Christ, his Son. It's by praying for changed communities that we begin joining with God in his work to make all things new in this world, to make our world more just, to make our world a place of healing and flourishing for all as people come to know the saving work and leadership of Jesus for themselves. This is what God invites you and I to do. So let's do this together for WCF and see how God changes this region, this city, and this neighborhood as God has intended for it to be. This is God's word. Amen.